0: Creative Sandbox Way podcast, episode 163. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, and I help professionals connect the dots between creativity, play, and work, so you can be more productive and innovative improve the bottom line, and be a better leader in all areas of life and work. My mission is to show you not only how play and creativity can help you get ahead, but why it's an essential tool in your kit. Now let's start digging in the sandbox. Before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to share that, as you know, June is right around the corner. If you're listening on the day that this goes live, which means that there are just four more weeks to get in on early bird pricing for my Create an Incubate retreat. The price goes up $300 on July 1st. So what is Create an Incubate retreat? Well, it's five days of living inside a hug. It's five days of uninterrupted time To create, to play. I'm so big on play, as you know, (laughs) so critical. And you know how hard it is to make time, to make space, to do the creative things that you love to do. It just doesn't happen at home on your own, right? So, create an incubate retreat is like an island of time in the middle of the year. September 12th through 16th, where you get to do that. But more than that, what I've discovered over five years of running this retreat is that the people who come transform. Something happens over the course of those five days, and it never fails. People show up as themselves, you know, you you come as one person, but you leave as a more fully expressed version of yourself. You come to create an incubate retreat. And you become a, you become more authentically you. That's the only way I know how to express it. And I think that must be why people keep coming back. Almost everybody who comes to create an Incubate Retreat comes back year after year. It's pretty special and it's pretty small. There's only space for 12 people total, including me. And there's not very many spaces left. And if you want to join us, I would love to have you just go to createandincubateretreat.com. That's CreateAndIncubateRetreat.com. And stay tuned for a way that you, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, you'll be able to get a taste of what the retreat is like coming up in July, unfortunately, after early bird pricing goes away. But still, it's a way to get, the t- get a taste of what the retreat is like before you sign up. So stay tuned for that. All right. On with this week's episode. This week, I have a conversation with Kathy Salit, who is an author, speaker, executive coach, performer, and CEO of Performance of a Lifetime, which is an Inc. five thousand fastest growing company for three consecutive years, and where she consults and trains leaders and teams at companies like American Express. Time Warner, Nike, Twitter, and Unilever. Kathy has a really cool story. At age 13, she dropped out of eighth grade and started an alternative school in an abandoned storefront in New York City. And since then, Kathy has dedicated her life to creating learning and development environments that challenge the status quo and help people and organizations to succeed and thrive. And Kathy is the author of the acclaimed book, Performance Breakthrough, A Radical Approach to Success at Work, which I have read and highly recommend. And there's a link to the book in the show notes. Kathy's work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fast Company, and the Wall Street Journal among other places, and she writes a weekly column for Inc.com. She also performs musical improv comedy at the award-winning Castillo Theater in New York City, and she sings jazz and blues on any stage she can find or create. I met Kathy at the Applied Improvisation Network World Conference in Irvine, California last summer, and I was thrilled that she was willing to come and have a conversation with me on the podcast. I wanted to also say that if you can pick up a copy of her book, Performance Breakthrough, she shares more about her story, which is fascinating. So definitely check out her book, read her story. And also the book is just a phenomenal, a f- phenomenal book for for you if you are you know working in a company it, or not. It's just a great book for for life. So highly, highly recommended. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kathy Salet. Yeah, nice to see you. <laughs> it's nice to see you.
1: <laughs> we could do we could do that on the podcast too.
0: We we we're starting. We're we're the recording is going. <laughs> oh, Oh, good. All right. Great. <laughs> so Kathy, you have such an amazing story. And I know, I mean, we could probably spend the entire podcast talking about your story alone, because your story is so amazing. But what I really want to ask you about is how you created or co created a company from your creative work. Kind, great. Of, kind of a big question but
1: <laughs> and and of course there's a lot of ways to, to answer it but um it's a great question and um, let me just also say I'm really happy to be on your podcast Melissa and um, we've been trying to get this scheduled I know for a while and um but I'm glad we finally did so thanks so much for having me um so How did I form? So I have a company called Performance of a Lifetime. Uh, You heard about it because Melissa introduced it before. Um, And we've been in business for 20 years, uh, a little over 20 years, actually. And uh, we're uh, a leadership uh, consulting and training company that helps businesses, leaders and teams with what we refer to as the human side of strategy. And that means that In any kind of business strategy that a company has, large or small, or a team has, large or small, you've always got to work to support and develop the human beings who are responsible for carrying out that strategy. And so our work is focused on helping the human beings um, inside these organizations to grow, to stretch, to communicate, to collaborate, um, to innovate. Uh, in ways that really go beyond what they think they might be capable of. Um, and we we use the art and science of theater and performance and improvisation, combined with breakthroughs in the human development sciences, a field that's called performative psychology, to help people to perform who they are not yet. Um, and so uh, I, I was an actor and an improviser for and a singer, for um, many years. I actually started singing professionally. Um, what, how old was I at this point? I actually think I started singing professionally uh, when I was about uh, 15, 15 or 16. And, you know, this is, this is back in the 70s. So it was like, you know, folk singing kind of professional, which, of course, wasn't very professional. <laughs> but it was on stage not in my home, in front of strangers. So, you know, that counts for me. And um, so I was always very interested in and and involved in the arts in in varying ways. And then in the early 90s, I was invited to be part of an improvisation troupe, an improv comedy troupe. I had never done any improv. Um, In fact, I didn't even know that I was funny. I mean, everybody in my family always laughed at my jokes, but I didn't, like, in the rest of the world, like, it didn't seem like I was a funny person, but the woman who was heading up this troupe, she thought I was funny. And she was like, no, you should come, and I'm going to teach you how to improvise. And I was like, great, you know? And her name was Emmy Gay, and so we formed a troupe called Emmy Gay and the (laughs) (laughs) Gagles. It was wonderful. It was just one of my favorite experiences. We weren't very good, but it was where I learned how to improvise and and to work with a troupe. and And so I was doing that work, and I was also doing some avant-garde experimental theater work at my the company, the acting company that I helped co-found called the Castillo Theatre in New York City. It had been named after the Guatemalan poet and revolutionary Otto Rene Castillo. And we did a lot of original work that you would consider sort of like on the sort of left you know, progressive, you know, sort of side of theater. Um, and, uh, and also we did a lot of work by this guy named this, this German playwright um, named Heiner Mueller. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's somewhat, he's less known in the United States, but looked very, very famous in Europe and Germany. He was sort of, he ran the Berliner Ensemble, which was Bertolt Brecht's theater in Germany and um, had just beautiful work. So anyway, that's a whole other story. But so I was involved in that, but I was also involved in um, as a community organizer uh, doing a lot of organizing primarily in the poor communities. And one of the, one of the projects we were working on was um, this program called the All Stars Talent Show, where by being in the communities, what we learned was that what, there was nothing for young people to do. It's like literally nothing to do. There's no programs, no money. You know, the schools suck. You know, there's very barren neighborhoods and like not a lot going on. And so when we went into the community, we said, well, what what would you like? What would be helpful in terms of, you know, having more in your lives and what people in the community told us. And this is like the South Bronx, Bed-Stuy, East New York. These are all, this is New York City. And these are all very poor communities, uh, primarily communities of color. And what people told us was um, are you, the young people love to sing mm-hmm. and they love to dance and they love to put on shows. So would you organize talent shows? Would you help us organize talent shows so that our kids can get up on stage and, and, and sing and perform? And so we did. And. We did it without any money, without any, you know, funding. And we ended up eventually going on the street corners and asking people in more affluent neighborhoods to support the creation of these talent shows in the poor communities. And people gave us $1 and $5 and $10. And now the All Stars Project is a $10 million a year nonprofit where the, the talent shows are actually the flagship program, but it's so much more. You heard me talk at the conference that we first met at, I think, about Operation Conversation Cops and Kids, where, where we're using theater and improvisation to bring together police officers and young people of color who were very estranged and very, it's, it's a you know, very difficult relationship, but using theater and improv, they are able to start to see each other um, in some new ways because they break from their scripts and they break from their their, their roles and they can touch and see and hear each other as human beings. Um, but I digress. Um, so um, I was doing that and then I was also, had always been very interested, and this comes from my background as a radical educator, in in how people learn and how people grow. And and the emotional side, emotive side of learning and development. And I've always felt that it wasn't just a cognitive kind of activity to learn and to grow. It wasn't just like, okay, here's some new facts, here's knowledge, whatever, that it had to be much, much more of a synthesis and that what learning and development is, is a synthesis between new information, but also our own ability to to um to to handle that information and the environment in which that that information takes place it gets shared and and how we feel about i had this wonderful one of the guys who who co-founded performance of a lifetime he was a philosophy teacher um and he um a philosophy professor and one of the things that he taught both inside and outside the academy was um, people's emotional, the emotional experience of learning logic. And because he he believed, and he, he was a therapist, and he was a gaggle also, he was an incredibly funny guy, and he helped co-found Performance of a Lifetime, he believed that in order to learn logic that for most people you had to sort of overcome the emotional barriers that made it so hard to to you know grasp this thing which is virtually impossible to understand and like if we could if he could work to create an environment in which people could include in their learning of logic their experience of like i don't know how to do this what does that mean you know why do you understand this and i don't or whatever you had to say or like i don't know am i allowed to curse on your podcast Yeah. Fuck shit. Fuck (laughs) shit. You know, I don't understand what you know, EMC equals you know whatever. I don't even know how to say it. But anyway, so I've always been super interested in that part of learning and development, the emotional, along with the intellectual. Anyway, put that all together. I was fortunate enough to to hook up with a community of people and to meet other people who, if they weren't interested in all of that they were interested in some of that you know and performance of a lifetime really grew out of all of that because it was a bringing together of work that was being done in a therapeutic context like literally in a th- you know in therapy and on the stage in an, in in a, in a in a um in a creative and a theatrical context and so the people who founded it me being one of them were either we had a therap we had two therapists, we had two actors, we had one singer, we had, we were all improvisers, um, two direct theater directors, like people just had like a visual artist, you know, and so on. And we said, let's see if we can create an experience for people who are not professional performers and who have no particular interest in being a professional performer but to give them the experience of the joy of performance, the joy of improvisation for their own personal development. And so we formed this school, I put that in quotes, called um, Performance of a Lifetime. And we designed a four-week program that started with people from, again, all walks of life, didn't know each other. The first group we had was 75 people uh, and we came together, and and at the first session, every single person got up on stage and performed their life in one minute, and it was this incredible, you know, array of performances that was so varied, and so nuanced, and so, both in, both in content, but also in, like, how they did it, they danced, they sang, they did a mime, they did a monologue, they played 17 people, they, they did a modern dance, they, you know, came up with a ukulele, you, you know, I mean, they just like, and, and all, and then we would, the design of the program was when they performed their one minute and then they got huge applause, huge applause, because that's such an important part of the experience of being able to do something as scary as that. And then, We, as improvisational directors, we would give them some theatrical direction inspired by what we saw them do for a sequel, like a 45-second, 60-second sequel. And then they would take that story that they had performed, and then they would go someplace that was like totally unexpected because we had given them this really weird direction, and we put professional improvisers into the scene with them. So it was just... to this day, it remains one of the most beautiful pieces of art, of human art and, and creation, human performance art that I've ever seen and, and um, may ever see. That first day where all those people do those one-minute performances, they, that, that culminated in um, a, a play, semi-scripted, semi-improvised play that was inspired by all, those, by all that raw material. That we then helped, we, the people from Performance of a Lifetime, helped shape, and then we put up on stage. Um, and, you know, and and sort of, so the business model was people, like, bought, you know, paid to register, they registered for this program, they did it over four weeks, and then they invited all their friends to the show. <laughs> and people bought a $10 ticket, and we had, you know, 150 people in the room, and we had a loft down in downtown New York. And, um... And so, you know, it was a, it was a very, it was a therapeutic experience for people. People like described it as just changing their lives and like feeling like they could do things that they never felt like they could do before. And, and the creative work of working together with other people who they didn't know and collaborating. And it was, um, it was just so beautiful. And so we did that for a couple of years until we totally ran out of money and, and including marketing dollars because we didn't have any fun. We had a little bit of funding. We had like six, you know, we had about, we had, we got, um, we had about a quarter of a million dollars worth of funding that we raised going into it, but that was spent very quickly. (laughs) And, um, you know, and by the third time of going back to the people who had participated in this program and saying, you know, would you come back and do it again? It would be really good if you do it again. You know, it was like, we have to do something else. Like, (laughs) this is just just like, not going to work. We got to pay the rent. So then we started like offering acting classes and comedy classes. That's when I started teaching comedy improv. Um, And I sort of like, that was great because I had no training in being a comedy improv teacher. It was more like, okay, what is improv? And like, it gave me an opportunity to really step back and to like, you know, deconstruct what improv was because I had to teach it. Um, and then somewhere along the way, about a year and a half into this, um, one of my students approached me, and I talk about this in my book, Performance Breakthrough, A Radical Approach to Success at Work, wink, wink, Um, she approached me and she said, could you do some version of this program that I just described? Uh, we used to call it Interactive Growth Theater. It was a particular program of performance of a lifetime. Could you do that for my sales team? And she worked for Thompson, uh, the Thompson Financial Information Group. I didn't even know, information services or something. I like didn't know what they did. I still don't know what they do, um, <laughs> you know. And um, and my first response when she asked us to do this inside a business context, a corporate context, context, was like, fuck no. Like, there's no way this thing is, like, too wild. It's too weird. I mean, this is weird. How, you know, she was like, no, I really think it could help my team. We're really, like, everybody is, you know, getting everybody angry and we're not working creatively. And anyway, Long story short, we did it. We sort of condensed it into a half day and um, they paid us $1,500, which I was like, oh my God, I could not believe how much money that was because, you know, we were making $15 on a tap dance class, you know, <laughs> so I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'll do it once for the $1,500. And um, so we did and, um, and it was great. And this was nineteen ninety, maybe eight, and um, and then soon after that, we were approached by another student, an amazing woman who is a medical doctor, and who was responsible for the communications training for the medical residents at a a local hospital in New York city called Long Island college hospital. And she asked us if we would co create the communications training for her medical residents. And she had been in our program. She's like, loved it. And we, we were like, okay, let's see if we can learn how to do that. And so you know, we were lucky because we had two advocates, one in a corporate situation and the other in a healthcare situation, very different environments, but still working using, um, you know, back then I didn't use the term applied improvisation, but in essence a form of applied improvisation using performance and theater and improv um, and this this new understanding of, of uh, how human beings learn and grow and um, the value of theater and play as a catalyst to help people to do things very differently, you know, and to see and act on new possibilities. So we ended up doing this for several years, actually, at Long Island College, College Hospital, the, um, the communications training for all of the medical residents. Uh, and over the course of that time, their customer satisfaction ratings went from dismal, I mean, dismal to some of the highest in the city wow. and and our client credits us with having made that difference because the who people are primarily seeing it was like you know it's a city hospital, so it's like a lot of poor people and um, a lot of uh, people like in the area, and who they see are the medical residents, you know um, and um, it really it really turned things around so. I don't even remember what your question was, uh, Melissa, but I think I asked, you asked, how did I cre- co-create a company out of our, out of my creative work? I hope yeah. I answered it to some
0: extent. Th- that definitely answered it, yeah. Okay, it qualifies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <Phew. laughs> I'm sorry I went off on a couple of tangents. That was
0: amazing.
1: Oh, thanks.
0: And I, I know for the past, I think, three years, you've been an ink 5,000 fastest growing company. Yeah. Can you believe that? That's amazing. So tell me about that. How? Well, for one thing we had to submit
1: and apply. And I say that because um, I wouldn't have known to do that. And that's just an important thing about being in business and being in business. Like, like you, like you got to think about and look for like, oh, What is, what is the, what is the Inc 5000 fastest growing company? And am I one of them? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And then it's sort of like, I, I, and it's hard to do that stuff, especially when you, you wear so many hats and you're like designing work and you're selling work and you're delivering work and you're, you know, when I, in my case, I was writing a book and you know, so sometimes you have to do some things where you're like, all right, I guess I should get a hold of the application and see if there's any way that we actually would fit. So. I say that small point but nonetheless important how did we um how did we actually fulfill the you know the requirements however i suppose is another question which i think is what you're asking which is let me first say that we had we had gotten small uh again very small in response in in the context of the recession so you know we got a head start in terms of then having significant growth because we were barely alive and we went from barely alive to alive. So that's a chunk of money. That's, that's a double digit growth right there. Do do you know what I mean? Um, and so as the economy started to pick up, we were we managed to stay in business, which I think was no small feat. Um, we almost didn't, uh, we had been like a, um, what have we been? We had probably been about a one point five million dollar a year business um and by the time the economy tanked we were we were under half a million um and everybody had gotten laid off who was working there and it was just me and my two partners, and you know we like slashed our salaries and um, but we always, by the way, one of the things that is important about Performance of a Lifetime and about the work that we do and, and something that's important to us partners is that even when we were had hardly anything, we always gave um, sort of off the top money to support social mission projects like the All Stars project, for example. And so that has always remained a priority. That's one of the reasons we're in business is to make money to support um, social mission efforts, in particular, that use the use creativity and the arts and performance to help to create change, both on an individual and on a community level. So, um, so we persevered. Um, I would like to think that that pos- that perspective, and that what I just said about what we do contributes greatly to our desire to stay to hang in there. Because we're not just doing it for our own sort of, you know, individual selves, but it's it's for a bigger cause. And so that makes you sort of say, well, I have some responsibilities so to some people out there. We've got some responsibility that they're, they're, they're counting on those dollars and we don't want to let them down. So let's see if we can make this thing work. So that's important. And then what happened was um, we... Uh, i wrote some notes actually we we've made the decision to start t- having other to learn about how to scale and how mm-hmm. to bring other people that we had worked with over the years, but we had always sort of like, we were always sort of in charge. We meaning the, you know, one of the three partners, myself, Maureen Kelly, and David Mackman, incredible, incredible talented people and wonderful people with amazing hearts. Um, And what we said was instead of trying to just like, Oh my God, here's a gig. Let's all do, let's all three of us do it. Or one of us, what we, what we just deliberately decided to do was let's bring in Melissa and let's bring in Shannon and let's bring in Jay and let's bring in Jeff. These are people who were independent, you know, trainers and get them involved right away so that we can continue the work of selling. And we can also continue the work of building our relationships with our clients. So we've just done a lot of work to do what's sometimes referred to as build our bench you know, um, and that's in the United States and globally. And we've done a lot of work to cultivate wonderful relationships and to really partner with and co-create with our clients. And also, um, to better understand what it is that we do. And, um, about three years ago, I was, I had, I had, um, the work of performance of a lifetime had been featured in a book, by uh, the best-selling author Dan Pink, he wrote a book called uh, "To Sell Is Human," and I had met him on a gig in Switzerland um, and basically stalked him and uh, successfully <laughs> and introduced. And as we're walking to dinner one night in the hills of the foothills of the Alps in Switzerland. You know, and I got, I got myself invited to the dinner. I had no business being at this dinner. I mean, no business being at this dinner. But my use of community organizing served me very well because, again, there's this sort of like, it's like, it's not about me. It's like, there's a reason that it's important that we do this. That's beyond, you know, whether or not, that's beyond whether or not I can pay my rent, even though I'd like to pay my rent. But so I just was like, I'm going to get myself into, invited to this dinner. And so I did, and then there I was walking alongside of Dan Pink, and I sort of talked to him. I asked him what he was working on. He said he was writing a book on sales, and I said, I said, well, let me let me share with you some ideas that come from the world of performance of a lifetime and the world of improvisation, which is this idea about hearing offers, and that 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 what an improviser does is they take everything and anything that anybody says or does, and they relate to it as a gift, as an offer, as something to create with. I said that is so essential and so important for helping people to become better salespeople. So he was like hooked. And so then we began this year-long conversation where he came to workshops that I was doing. I went down to visited him and talked with him about. And so um so That was a big deal. I mean, it was a wonderful experience for me because he, by by the way, he is an awesome person. Um, He's like a real regular guy. He's super smart, obviously, um, super connected. And he's a doll. He's just a total doll. And so it was just, it was wonderful for me to get get a chance to get to know him too. So this chapter appeared plus in this book, uh, which then started to get some, you know, notice including that um, I was approached by literary, actually several literary agents who said, are you writing a book? To which I said, "Um, uh, yeah, I guess. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) I am, I am. Thank you for asking, you know? And so that experience of working on the book really helped us sharpen our understanding of, of who we are and what we're about and what the science is of this approach. And we now refer to our work as the becoming principle. Um, and we, and, and simply put, that is we, ha- we we use theater and improvisation as a catalyst to help people to both be who they are and be who they're not because it's in that space of being who you are and who you're not. And theater l- gives you the license to be who you're not because that's what actors do. It's also what kids, little kids do um, that enables them to grow and to learn in so many ways. Um, but it's the being who you are and who you're not that helps you to become who you are, who you want to be. And, and so that sharpening of that brand and of that and of what we do, um, combined, I think, with the actual publication of the book and the response that we got has really sort of catapulted us into another level of of company um and so you see that over the course of these past three years where we've had double digit growth and we basically that along with our commitment to scaling and bringing other people in and using their talents and also training them in what we do i think we're seeing is, is what has resulted in in that kind of growth and that kind of honor Wow. I promise that you will that I will answer one question quickly. I, I promise <laughs> I will fi- I will come up with one quippy short response.
0: You do not you do not have to have quippy short responses. Your responses are perfect. I'm curious how you find your new. I don't even know what you call them trainers, facilitators. What what is the what is the title for the people who lead your programs your workshops your whatever you call them
1: well it what is the we find them I mean as you might expect we get a lot of people who want to work for us you know because as you know using theater and improvisation and applied improvisation it's a growing field you know and I think there's just greater recognition in business and elsewhere that play and 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 creativity and um, you know and if you will social emotions play an imp- all of that plays much more of a role in, in, in helping people to learn and to grow and change. So I think we're seeing a, a real uptick of interest in this kind of methodology. When we first went, came into business, by the way, when we first started the business, it was us in Second City and Second City who were doing anything off the stage any, any use of improv off the stage. And what they were doing was actually more like sort of edutainment and they were brilliant at it, but there was literally nobody else doing it. And now, you know, it's quite a, it's, 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 it's a much more crowded space and I welcome that. So anyway, so, so, so there's, there's people who want to work with us. Um, And then what was the other question? How do what do we call them?
0: Yeah. What do you what do you call the people that you hire to do the work? And what do you call the programs that you do?
1: Yeah, well that's a that's a big question. Um we call them facilitators, coaches, um trainers, uh executive coaches, we call them sort of different things. Um, there will some, and, and that means that they are actually there. What we do in our work with clients. So for example, so for example, like I just sold um, a gig for a client in Japan. Um, and uh, this is, what what this is, is a, this is actually only a one-day sort of pilot. And what we're working with them on is they're bringing all their senior salespeople from, for, for the country. Uh, this is being organized by the general manager of the company, because they're trying to make a shift from what is sometimes referred to as product and service sales to what is referred to as solution selling, and I don't know if that's familiar to your audiences, but it's the difference between, in a way, selling a widget and selling um, expertise. And so, um, this is a company that has done very well selling, you know, their version of a of a widget or widgets, like super well. But as the marketplace has changed, they have to get better at, both because of the the product, if you will, that they sell has evolved. Um, they have to, and because the marketplace is more crowded and there's more innovation going on, they have to begin to make the shift to a new performance where they are not just sort of saying, okay, you can pick from box number one, two, or three to, to saying to the, client, how are you thinking about where you want to be in the next, you know, over the next two to three years? Let's talk about what your, you know, what your strategy is so that I can, we can help, you know, we can bring to bear our expertise to support you to get where you want to go. That's a, that's a totally different performance. It's a totally different scene. And so what we do is what we're going to do and what we've done now in many, many different contexts for many different kinds of clients is to is to one help them become aware that they are performers that 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 what they do naturally now wasn't natural at some point. They actually had to perform it before it felt like them. <laughs> they had to pretend they had to play. But now they just think, oh, this is just who I am and this is the way you do it. But we're saying there's actually a new play going on. We want to help you see this new play that, you know, see your current play. But there's a new play that we we want, to, you know, your company and we want to help enlist you in creating this new play and having a say in how this play goes and what the scripts are. But we're going to get you on stage and get you, you know, trying out some of those new Script, some of those new performances, but we also want to help you to make that transition by like playing and doing abstract, you know, performance where all you're doing is sort of like having the experience of looking like a damn fool, (laughs) you know, because you're going to feel like a damn fool when you're there having this new kind of conversation cuz you're like I have I had to have that you know I and mean, that's not japanese obviously but but <laughs> you know what i mean you know and so so our people and this program is actually being delivered in japanese which i'm still like totally impressed by which is why i'm telling you and your audience cuz i'm so pressed i'm going to i'll go and i'm going to sit there and i'm going to have no idea what these people are saying <laughs> I'm so excited about, except that I'm helping to design the workshop and to, I mean, we have people in Japan, so we had people that we've worked with, but so we do a lot of, but we do, and we're going to work with them, these, these, these senior salespeople on listening, listening like an improviser, you know, the kind of listening where you're listening, not just to, you know, okay, you're done now. It's my turn to say something. And then I'm done. And now it's your turn to say something, but listening for the unexpected, for listening, for where you, you're you really taking in what people are saying and saying, oh, well, what can I say now? What can I do now that I wouldn't have been able to do unless I heard what they said? And that's more like consultative selling. That's more like solution selling as opposed to this is the widget, this is the product, I just got to get you to buy it. But that's scary because A, they don't know how it's going to go. B, it requires a different kind of, um, it's granted a lot of confidence, you know, and these are not un- in- unconfident people, but they're unconfident in doing this. Right. So, so, but so anyway, so there'll be, so that's an example of a sales program, but then we'll also, we also do a lot of work with what's called high potentials, you know, people who are, you know, who are, who are sort of being looked at inside an organization to get to another level of leadership. And so we do a lot of work with them to help them on, um, you know, navigating the various scenarios that they're in, whether it's managing up and, you know, dealing with their boss or, you know, how they deal with their peers or how do they deal with, you know, like there's always tension between, um, you know, technology and the business side of things or products and the sales side. And how do you how do you get a seat at the table and, and on and on and on. And we look at all of that as a series of scenes, as a Mm. series of performances, that we help people both to actually practice in those scenes, rehearse, but also to become aware of their own agency and their own creativity in being able to make choices in the way that actors make choices in the scene, depending on what their character should be doing.
0: I love it. I would really love to talk a little bit about the relationship between art and creativity that you do for love Mm. versus the art and creativity that you do for money. Maybe we can spend a few minutes on that.
1: Yeah, I'd love to.
0: So tell me about, do you do art and any creative stuff for love separate from the, the creative stuff that you're doing for your business?
1: I do. I, I have to say, I wish I did more, but, um, I mentioned that I, you know, at a young age, I started singing. And so for, for, for probably about five years, um, in my early twenties, I was a professional singer and, um, sort of went out on the road, uh, and, um, sang jazz and R and B. Um, I, I sort of graduated from folk eventually, Uh, (laughs) although I still love it. Um, and, um, and then most most recently, and then I stopped. I sort of stopped pursuing that as my main career, but I never stopped loving to sing. Um, and um, I um, my partner is a trombone, a jazz trombone player, and so um, and he and I met three years ago, and so it's through him that I've actually started to. I wouldn't call it gigging but I've been, I've been sitting in and singing and, um, he bought me a electric piano for my birthday, which I just got. And I'm so, I'm like, I'm like a pig and shit. I mean, I just like, I'm so happy. I mean, I'm a little intimidated because it's been so long, but it's like, oh, here's a major seventh chord. I know how to do that. And here's a suspended sixth. And what do I do with my left hand? And, and, um, and so I've been performing a little bit, um you know in clubs and and um so that's it's both terrifying for me because i don't know if you have had this experience in terms of your own music melissa but like in new york jazz musicians don't rehearse <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing co- i'm like i'm like isn't there any could we get together for like 45 minutes just like to the beginning and the end you know no so I have to sort of, that's part of my sort of like steely stomach, like, okay, I don't really remember how to end this (laughs) song or how to direct the band. And so, you know, so I've had a little bit of that, but if you sing the blues, you can, you can sort of always count that, you know, you know, you know, the turnaround, you know, CODA thing on that. So, (laughs) but, but I just, oh, my God, I love it, and I wish I could do it more, but I am doing it more. That's one thing. And then the other thing I did, and I think I said this to you when we first met in August because I had just come from there, but I went to the Omega Institute for the first time in my life here on the East Coast, and for a week-long singing retreat with Bobby McFerrin. Oh,
0: my God.
1: He has this thing that he does, and his this, and his band of incredible singer improvisers, teachers, called circle song. Mm -hmm. So there was 150 people and we sang eight hours a day. uh, Like, you know, the, there's just incredible mass improvisations. And, and so I, oh my God, I just loved it. It was just so to, to have the experience of a week where I wasn't running anything I was not responsible for anything, and all I did was learn and sing, and 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 be and hear and listen. It was just, and also one of my, like uh, this singer that I've always just madly loved, this woman named Rhiannon. Who, um, oh, you know Rhiannon. And then I
0: got to study with her at jazz camp. West. she's, she's amazing. amazing!
1: Amazing, she's amazing. Oh, my God! So you know, she was one of the faculty, and I was just like, "Hi, hi can, what when are you going to teach again? I just want to be in your session." you know But I honestly felt that way about all of them, but Rihanna was like, Rihanna and I knew, you know um, so so that was just wonderful, and I've also been able to integrate. I'm starting to do a little bit of circle song in some of the programs that I'm running.
0: Oh, wow. I
1: Just love. I just love, 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 love. So, you know, I can't say that I really made a resolution in 2018 that I was going to do more of it, but I hope I do more of it. (laughs) I hope I can make that
0: happen. (laughs) Oh my God. I'd love to talk to you more about that another time because I've been thinking about doing that too. Oh, So so cool. Well, before we completely run out of time, I think you brought us something cool, right? Mm.
1: I did. I did. Here's what's
0: cool. What's your something um, cool?
1: Okay, so there's a conference that I've been part of, I've been going to, and I've, I consider myself sort of a, a, a co-creator of even though I have no official role. <laughs> um, and this is conference called Performing the World. And it is a gathering of international performance activists um, that happens every other year. It's biannual. It's happening in September in New York City, and these are people who are just, just doing some of the most beautiful work. Some of them are like you know in New York and and in you know Vancouver and 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 big cities you know uh, American cities, and then some of them are in like little little villages in Kenya, or. Um, uh in uh you know in the in the slums of sao paulo and they're all in varying ways using performance and theater and um improvisation and dance and music as part of impacting on the community as part of creating social change and um, I love this conference with a passion, um, and so I just really recommend that people check it out. I really hope, Melissa, that you're able to come to it. Um, it's in New York in September, and what I can't remember is the damn date, but I think it's like September 23rd or something like that, um, like September 21st, maybe, through the 23rd. Um, and so that's a really cool thing. Wow. It's a really cool thing. Performing the world, PTW, either performingtheworld.org or ptw.org. I don't I don't remember.
0: Oh my god, it sounds amazing. I will put I will look it up and put it in the show notes and check it out. That sounds incredible. My something cool is not nearly as cool, but it's still <laughs> <laughs> it's still kind of cool. So I, I stopped eating dairy for a bunch of reasons recently. My body was not able to tolerate it, and I'm super excited that I figured out how to make pesto without any cheese. So really,
1: yes. How do you how do you do that?
0: Oh, I, do you, am I am I allowed to ask? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, okay. I have this recipe for vegan arugula spinach pesto. You can either make it with all arugula or all spinach. Spinach makes it very sort of roasty flavor. It's kind of cool, and I substitute instead of um parmesan i use raw cashews
1: i was just going to say raw well, cashews i just discovered that myself Yes, not not for
0: pesto though but for something else for, wow what do you use your raw cashews for i used it for um
1: for a, like a gratin on a fish oh yeah
0: well i will include this recipe <laughs> and the uh the credit goes to it's um It's uh, adapted from the Pink Ribbon Cookbook, which is also very cool. So I'll include a link to that cookbook. Um, So that's my something cool. So you've got your very high-level, cool, cool, amazing conference, and you've got your very (laughs) low-level vegan arugula spinach pesto. So that's (laughs) something cool. It's quite a range. quite quite a range. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Kathy, I – I don't want to let you go because I want to talk to you for like the next seven years, but thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm so glad we managed to make it work and I'm going to be looking forward to talking to you more.
1: Ditto, ditto, ditto. And I would love to come back sometime. And also, of course, would love to talk to you when we're not being recorded. <laughs> I will look forward
0: <laughs> to that. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you, dear. Have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Thanks. Bye. That's it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kathy Salent. Let me know if you resonated. And thank you so much for joining me today. If you're getting value out of this podcast, share it with a friend. And I would be super appreciative if you would take a moment to hop on over to the Apple podcast player and leave a rating and review. If you don't know how to do that, no problem, I've got you covered. Just go to creativesandboxway.com slash iTunes hyphen review. That's creativesandboxway.com slash iTunes dash review. Got step-by-step instructions right there. And if you email me, to let me know that you left a review, and let me know how the podcast has made a difference in your life. That is how you apply to be considered for the listener spotlight. If I pick you we will have a really fun, relaxed conversation. And you'll get to be featured on the podcast, just like Kathy was super cool. So that's it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me and go get creating. Mm-hmm. Subscribe at Creative Sandbox com slash podcast.